Well, good morning, Lakeside. It is good to be gathered together in this way. And as you can see for this recording, I have finally been chased indoors. I don't know what my lower limit is, but I know it's at least minus three because that's what it is outside right now. And so we're inside today uh, to do this recording. And we're picking up uh, a little bit from last week. We looked at 1 Corinthians 11 and Paul was talking about unity in the church. And what I want to talk about this week is where there are elements of disunity or where there's discord in the church. And when is that valid? Is it ever valid? And anyone who knows me well enough knows that I have a fairly high tolerance for confrontation. When I was younger and perhaps a little more foolish than I am now, some people might have suggested I even enjoyed confrontation. I have a mischievous streak that likes to stir the pot, uh, that enjoys pushing buttons and poking the bear, so to speak. I do confess a certain pleasure in putting people off guard, especially when they feel like they are on solid ground and it may not be quite as solid as they think it is. And I know that that is not a good quality. I had to read and reread the Apostle Paul's writings to Timothy and Titus, his pastors in training, with whom he emphasized the importance of maturity and grace. And those epistles were important to me uh, when I was younger. 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 23 says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they only breed quarrels. Okay, I hear you, Paul, Jesus, Holy Spirit. That's good counsel. It leads to godliness. The church is not the place for division. It's not the place for disagreement. It's not working as intended if the church is a place of controversy. Well, at least not foolish or ignorant controversy. Now, I'm a careful reader, and there's an important qualifier in this instruction about controversy, isn't there? Many people in churches have been deeply hurt by foolish or ignorant controversies. People have been turned away over issues that never should have been divisional, divisive, or controversial. Whole churches have split for foolish and ignorant reasons. And so we don't want to be an obstacle to people growing in their faith or hurtful to those who are seeking the fellowship of believers or destructive to the witness of the gospel or the work of the kingdom. So we do need to get this right. This warning that Paul gives Timothy is important. But what is a foolish or ignorant controversy compared to a controversy that is wise and well-informed? Is Paul really saying here that there should never be controversy, that there should never be quarrels in the church, that there should never be division or differences? Paul himself certainly did his share of confronting the church, even confronting other apostles. He did not shy away from applying his authority to situations inside the church. But why did he have to be so heavy-handed sometimes and then at other times seemingly overflow with grace. So it's too simplistic to simply say churches never argue, that anyone who divides is always a wrongdoer. That would be too simplistic. It doesn't stand up to the scrutiny of the New Testament, either in the actions of Paul 
or his words. Not every church quarrel is foolish because we have to come to grips with the stark reality that the Christian faith will divide. Not because of hatred or prejudice or preferences, but because the Christian faith defines truth from deception, light from dark, life from death. And inevitably, when light comes into darkness, when truth comes into deception, then there will be a division. Jesus says of himself in Matthew 10, 34 to 36. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus is saying that when we authentically follow him, not everyone will follow us and some will even hate us, even in our own families. What people choose to do with Jesus in their life, either accept him or reject him, places them in one camp or the other. It's simply impossible to both accept and reject Jesus. It's impossible to both accept his truth and reject it. So Jesus will divide. The gospel does divide. There is no simplistic answer to this. And so as Christians, we have to understand this. If Jesus says that he came to divide and Paul engaged in controversies of his own, where does that leave us then as we consider how and when controversy is either wise or foolish or when it is ignorant or knowledgeable? When do we continue in fellowship with other believers or people who claim to be believers? And when must we depart? As faithful Christians, we need to explore what we might call a doctrine of church conflict. If we're going to experience true unity and true peace and true fellowship with each other, not just on the surface, but that runs all the way to the foundation, then we are going to have to understand the words of Jesus and Paul and Peter and the other apostles where they make clear that even in the church, there must be divisions. Let me just pray as we begin that conversation. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you as we look into your word to seek its insight. Thank you that your Holy Spirit has inspired it and that your Holy Spirit opens up our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear it and know it. We pray that we would be transformed by what we learn today. In Christ's name, amen. So, as we consider this doctrine of division or doctrine of conflict, I'm going to start out with one of the more succinct and shocking statements Paul makes in our text from last week. You remember, as we were talking about communion, Paul was rebuking the church in the city of Corinth over their lack of unity and their lack of humility in approaching the Lord's Supper together. But as we unpack that passage, I skipped over one sentence of Paul's that we're going to return to now in order to understand Christian unity in a context with proper church divisions or factions. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 19. I'll just read 17 to kind of put your mind back where we were. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And he's going to talk about the instructions for communion. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Paul doesn't want there to be a kind of division, a certain kind of division. He's saying that's wrong. But then he says, and I believe it in part. 
Verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So let's get this into the right context in the letter so far and what Paul's talking about. As we touched on last week, this letter of Paul to the church in Corinth, for the most part, expresses many areas of the Christian life where we can hold very different opinions. Some Christians will remarry and other Christians will feel they need to remain single. Uh, that's okay. Some Christians will eat meat that's been blessed at a pagan idol and others will not touch that meat and that's okay. Some people observe a particular Sabbath or a particular feast and others don't and that's okay. Some people will leave their job and go into ministry, but others are fine to stay in the employment that they are. It's okay. You can be a soldier Christian, a slave Christian, or a senator Christian. It's okay. If Paul was writing about these things to Timothy, he might say, these are things people would quarrel about only if they were foolish or ignorant. Paul would say, if there was controversy over these things, they would be foolish and ignorant controversies, and you should not be breaking fellowship or acting poorly towards each other over them. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about going to communion. He's saying, you have disunity or you're not coming together. There's divisions among you that are not valid decisions. Paul believes it to be true and inspired by the Spirit, he instructs us that Christians can still be Christians and hold some opinions that seem diametrically opposed to each other, and that those Christians can enjoy fellowship together. In fact, they should enjoy fellowship together, especially at communion. It would be foolish or ignorant to allow these differences to divide us, to be a source of controversy. I mean, are we really going to split a church over a style of music? Are we going to quarrel about people wearing hats? Let that sink in for a moment, because I'll say it again. This is what Paul teaches. Christians can still be Christians and hold some opinions that seem diametrically opposed. But here we have in one of his strongest appeals to unity, also an affirmation from Paul that there must be factions among people in the church. And he gives the reason in the text. He says that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So what we learn from this is that Paul is strenuously opposed to division over foolish, ignorant, or unnecessary things, but we also learn that there are legitimate reasons for disunity and for division and quarreling and conflict to arise in the body of Christ. Namely, when there are non-genuine believers or there is non-genuine teaching or practices taking place in the church. In Matthew 7:15, Jesus says to his disciples, "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." And then Paul says in the book of Acts as he's departing the church in the city of Ephesus, he says to the elders there, listen to this. "Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock" in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Jesus says that there are going to be wolves that look like sheep. Paul says that from among yourself, False teachers will arise. And John says in 1 John, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But 
they went out that it might become plain that all are not of us. And there's many other texts much like this. That last one is a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? But John is saying they departed because they weren't really part of us. They, if they were part of us, they wouldn't have left. But because they left, it became plain that they were not part of us. So it's expected, unfortunately, that we will find in the church people who look genuine. They look like sheep, but they're not genuine. Jesus says they look like sheep, but they're wolves. Paul says that they will arise from among your own selves. John says that they were among us, but they went out because they were not really of us. And so while there is on one hand many areas where Christians can differ, Paul says Christians can hold opinions on things that are very different and still be Christians and still actually have fellowship and even take communion together. But there are some places where differences lead us to the point of no longer being able to be identified even as Christians. And we have to identify those factions and see them removed from the church. There's a point at which the controversy is no longer simply foolish or ignorant. It is a controversy about the very doctrines of the Christian faith. And those doctrines will divide. Well, what are those areas? Well, to summarize very large topics, we can say that they are most often in the doctrines of Christ, the doctrines of salvation, the doctrines of atonement and justification just to name a few that have divided the true church from false teaching over the centuries. And we'll just look at a couple because this message is not really about looking at all the different false teaching or things like that, but simply to emphasize that there are reasons sometimes for disunity. There are reasons for divisions in the church. They shouldn't be the foolish ones, but there are wise ones. John says in his letter that there are some, in 1 John 2, 23, who deny the Son, now, it's interesting because these are probably Jewish people, mix of Jews and Gentiles. They, they're not denying that Jesus existed. Nobody was denying the existence of Jesus. They were spending years arguing about him. So there was no doubt of his existence. What they were denying was that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. If you deny that, you are not a Christian. If you deny that, we can't take communion together. And not only that, we can't pretend we're preaching the same gospel. How can we be preaching the same message of good news if you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah? And so if that is the difference, then you're welcome to come to our church. You're welcome to hear the true gospel, but you won't be considered a partner in our ministry. We can't fully fellowship with you. There will be a division with us. And if you were to try to teach something contrary to scripture, then there would be controversy. There would be a faction to reveal who is genuine. That's on the doctrine of Christ or Christology or on the doctrine of salvation. Can we have fellowship with those who believe that our justification is earned by human effort? In direct contrast to the teaching of scripture and the complete work of Jesus on the cross. No, if you believe that you are earning favor with God towards your salvation by helping old ladies across the street or feeding children in Africa, and that is somehow justifying you or qualifying you for a reward, then you have a fundamentally wrong understanding of the debt of your sin and the good news of the gospel and what Christ has done to fully pay your debt, to be the sacrifice that we could not be to atone for our sins. No church could function if half the people believe salvation must be earned and half believed it can never be earned. 
And in fact, the church did not remain unified when that division became apparent. That is the foundation of the Reformation and it created the Catholic and Protestant divide in the church. Why is there a Catholic church apart from all Protestant churches? It's the doctrine of justification. As Paul said, there must be factions among you that those who are genuine may be recognized. The church does not believe in justification by Christ alone. They believe in justification by Christ plus works plus the grace of the Holy Roman Church. And so that difference exists to this day. Even though I understand that there are many Catholics who may be Christians, and there are many even Catholic priests who may preach the gospel, but if your Catholic priest or a Catholic priest has preached the pure gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone and not justification by works or any grace of the Holy Roman Church, then that priest has not been teaching the Roman Catholic Catechism. He's a bad priest. I'm glad he's a bad priest, but he's a bad priest. So there is a division because there are areas in our faith and in our truth about Christ that cannot be denied. This is why we don't invite the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons to our local ministerial meetings. It's because of their Christology. There's a fundamental error in their knowledge of who Jesus is that makes unity in kingdom work impossible. So there are some things that must divide and some things we must not divide over. Paul says, don't divide up over spiritual gifts that you have, the church needs all of them. He says, don't divide over the food you eat or your ethnicity or the day you prefer to worship or whether you're circumcised or not. Don't divide on, over those things, but do divide over genuine issues of gospel truth and any teaching or practices that deny those truths. So then we can ask ourselves, is division then always disunity? Because we do see churches apparently divided over some secondary issues, don't we, today? Among the Protestants, we have the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Baptists and the Brethren. And we have the Charismatics and the non-Charismatics. And we have the Charismatic with a seatbelt, you know, the Bapticostals. Are these denominational divisions proper or improper? Are they sinful or sanctified? Are they all really divisions? In many cases, these divisions are themselves a form of unity. Just as Paul teaches, there will be differences among Christians within a local church. And by the grace of God, by the power of the gospel, Christians are able to appreciate and respect their different convictions within the church. Some do this, some do that. That's okay. You can still fellowship together. So at the same time, there may be distinctive forms of church governance and worship and practices that churches can respect each other for, but find it more profitable for the kingdom to work with like-minded brothers and sisters rather than running up against secondary issues all the time. So we can ask ourselves things like, will we break fellowship with churches or denominations who baptize differently than we do? What if they organize their governance differently? What if they meet on a different day? We have to recognize that no Christian, no church has perfect doctrine, or rather no Christian and no denomination has a perfect application of doctrine in every area of the Christian life. And so we do allow grace for some differences and what those differences express. And they express themselves ultimately as a kind of unity that allows us to work together while at the same time respecting each other's different convictions. 
And there are great, faithful, reformed churches and bodies of believers who baptize babies. I can't make the case for that from Scripture, but their doctrine of justification and salvation is no different than mine. They simply practiced a certain sign or ordinance differently than I would. So we don't have to be enemies over that. We're in the same kingdom. We're both genuine. Denominations emerged as a natural way in which Christians can express charity or humility towards each other in areas where we are certain that we share the same relationship with Jesus, but at the same time we must respect each other's differing convictions. And it's actually more unifying for the church if we practice those things somewhat at arm's length, yet working together for the same gospel and the same kingdom. In essence, what we find in the New Testament is this basis for unity. Do we agree on the sufficiency, inspiration, and inerrancy of Scripture? And do we share a conviction to interpret and apply the Scripture in the same ways? If there's no agreement on the Scripture, if there's no agreement on the Word of God and what the Word of God says, then Christians, even whole churches, will have great difficulty in ministering together in the kingdom or even being certain that we share the same kingdom or preach the same gospel. It will be impossible not to view each other with suspicion if we do not agree on the very nature of the scripture and the truth that they convey. Coming back to Paul and his writing to Timothy, notice Paul's emphasis on the importance of scripture in unity. He says in 2 Timothy 2, 15 to 18, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So here again, Paul is dealing with unity and disunity, with controversy, with division, And Paul says the foundation, the standard that Timothy is to hold to is the right handling of the word of truth, the gospel, the scriptures, the word of God. And then he points out examples in this church. He says, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they've swerved from that truth. These are people that are no longer adhering to the scriptures properly specifically the doctrine of Christ and the resurrection, and it is upsetting the faith of people in the church. So Paul here identifies a valid division where there must be factions in the church to identify who is genuine and who is not. And I can assure you, in every instance, those who are not genuine are twisting or swerving from the scripture. If they're not twisting or swerving from the scripture in a meaningful way, then they can't be identified as not genuine. But Paul says the test is this. They're not handling the word rightly. You can see that they have swerved from the truth. So how does this apply? Well, as I said at the start, our dedication to true peace and authentic unity, not a false peace, not an inauthentic unity, not just a Uh, acceptance of everything and everyone at all times, which does not actually unify. It simply buries the divisions. If we want true unity and true peace, then we must not, as Christians, take a simplistic approach to controversy, nor do we take a simplistic approach to unity. 
Every Christian has to examine themselves and the scripture to see that the reality of who Christ is and what he has done leads to fellowship on one hand, but also division on the other. In Christ, everyone is welcomed into one family. There is unity in Jesus. It doesn't matter your social status, your ethnicity, your ability, your intelligence, your past behavior, your family background, nothing you have done in the past disqualifies you from the love of Jesus. There is absolute unity across all classes, all ethnicities, all situations. And even within the family of Jesus, there is grace for our differences. We must be able to rightly determine within the church what differences Christians can hold and still be expected to have fellowship together. Because Paul says we can be different and yet still be part of the same kingdom and that we must still fellowship together even in communion. That's the unity side. But then as Christians, we also have to not be simplistic. We also have to be wise to see clearly that Jesus divides, that his good news is the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death to others, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16. Death and life cannot coexist together. And that's going to cause division. So how are we going to handle conflict in the church then? Taking from what Paul has been talking about, what Jesus has said, what John has said, how are we going to handle conflict? First of all, we will not be ignorant. We are going to be Bible-saturated so that we can assess everything according to Scripture. So that as we approach controversy, we're not approaching it in ignorance, we are approaching it in wisdom. Secondly, we won't be foolish. We are going to make sure from our knowledge of Scripture that we are not being divisive over non-essential things or worse, being divisive over personal preferences. Whatever color the carpet is, whether we sit on pews or in seats, whether we play drums or organs, um, there have been lots of controversies in the church in the past and they have been foolish and they have been personal preferences and they have caused division when they did not need to. So we won't be ignorant and we won't be foolish. Thirdly, we won't be surprised. Paul says that there must be factions. And so we understand as Christians that church working as intended will at times expose differences between true followers and false followers. So as Christians, we're not going to be surprised or discouraged or disappointed when a significant disagreement or division appears. And that has been the case in the church, especially in modern history. As soon as there's any disagreement, as soon as there's any division, as soon as there's any controversy, even controversy about a doctrine of the faith or about the gospel. I talked about one a little earlier in this message, and some of you may have been uncomfortable, even as I just touched on a doctrinal difference between two large streams of the Christian church. And we cannot be surprised and we cannot be discouraged because Paul says, Differences and divisions and factions will arise. And so as Christians, we do not turn away and we do not in dismay simply brush aside or run away from conflict when it is wise and proper conflict or division because the church must keep its message pure. So we won't be ignorant, we won't be foolish, we won't be surprised, but we will be courageous when a quarrel arises, we will be ready to confront it with wisdom and with grace and mercy and knowledge to discern if it is a foolish quarrel or a faithful one. 
And if it is a faithful one, then we will remain in the discussion. We will remain in the quarrel, for lack of a better word. Because, fifthly, we will not rely on our culture or our preferences, but on Scripture as our only guide. I can't trust my emotions. I can't trust my preferences. I'm influenced by my history. I am conformed by my family. I am affected by my generation, by my culture. I'm even influenced by what I ate for dinner. The scriptures are the measure of our faith and practice, not any of those other things. And so we will be courageous and we will not rely on our culture or our preferences, but on scripture. And why do we need to do that? Why do we need to not be discouraged, not shrink away, be courageous and rely on scripture? Because Paul encourages Timothy, one of the last letters he ever wrote before his death. He says in 2 Timothy 1.14, he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. We cannot avoid this reality. We have been given a good deposit. It's been entrusted to us as Christians, especially entrusted to us as the church. And we must guard the good deposit. We cannot allow it to become impure or to swerve away from the truth or to become corrupted. Some factions in the church reveal the truth some factions and disagreements and controversies reveal what is genuine. And by revealing what is genuine and what is not, it enables us to guard the truth. So I urge you, as Paul would, definitely avoid the foolish and the ignorant controversies. Don't get involved in those. Let go of them and release the things that are just your preference or that you realize are how you would rather have things be and that aren't necessarily scriptural. But on the other hand, tackle the error and the dangerous teaching of those who are not genuine head on. Don't shrink back from controversy when it involves the integrity of the gospel and the witness of the church. It is our good deposit to guard. God bless you guys. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth the opening of our eyes to the reality that there must be controversy, that uh, we should not be taken by surprise by it, but the wise guidance that we're given, that it not be foolish or ignorant, rather that it be based on doctrinal truth of your scripture, and that where there is a controversy, where there is a divide that's based on the truth of your scripture and the testimony of your gospel, then we will stand for what is true. It has proven your church proven to be faithful to your church all through history. And if your church was to go on for another thousand years, your scripture and faithfulness to it would prove to be faithful to the church again. Father, we just stand on your word and we act courageously on what your Holy Spirit has given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.